When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a Remax agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Trauma, violence, bullying, addiction. The range of things that these words encompass has expanded over time. And while my guest today would say that changes in how language is used are natural and inevitable, he also argues that the way we use words matters and has consequences, and that we need to better grapple with what those consequences are. His name is Dr. Nick Haslam, and he's a professor of psychology at the University of Melbourne, who studied a phenomenon he calls concept creep, which refers to the tendency of concepts having to do with harm, from trauma to depression, to broaden their meaning over time. Nick describes how concept creep happens in two ways, vertical and horizontal, and occurs both amongst clinicians in the general public. He explains what he thinks is behind concept creep and how the way we talk about harm-related concepts changes how people experience themselves in life, bringing new kinds of identities and new kinds of people into existence. Nick argues that while there are upsides to concept creep, it also carries potential dangers that can negatively impact our lives. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash concept creep. Nick Haslam, welcome to the show. Hey, Brett. Glad to be here. So you are a psychologist who has researched and written about an idea that you call concept creep in, in psychology. And we're going to get into the details about this. But broadly speaking, how would you describe concept creep? Well, concept creep is just the tendency for concepts to do with harm. That is concepts to do with suffering or pain or damage or destruction to broaden their meanings over time so that they start to refer to a wider range of things than they once did. Okay. So we'll talk about one, for example, an idea that we hear a lot in the popular cultures is this idea of trauma. A decade, two decades ago, it had a very specific meaning. We'll talk about what that was, but over time it is broadened to encompass larger psychological things that happen in life, right? It, it covers more than besides that specific meaning it originally was designed to describe. Yeah. And that's a great example. And in fact, trauma, as you know, goes right back centuries and it used to refer to a physical wound. And then about a hundred years ago, it started to refer to a psychological wound instead. And that's now the dominant meaning, but also within psychiatry, a trauma, a traumatic event used to be something that was seriously life-threatening. But over time, in successive editions of psychiatric classifications, that idea has loosened, which is a great example of concept creep. So that it refers to a wider range of bad things that can happen. And of course, everyday people have taken that further so that in some circles, a trauma just now refers to pretty much any kind of adversity, not just the really severe ones it used to mean. 
When did you first start noticing this, you know, idea of concept creep in your work as a psychologist? My memory is really vague on that. So I started thinking about this seriously about 10 years ago, and I first wrote about it in 2015. But I have friends in grad school who said that they used to hear me banging on about it uh, back in the 90s. So look, I think it's been around for a while, but I just started noticing what I thought was a pattern around about 10 years ago. So the clinical psychology side of me was saying, there's all this work on how our ideas about mental illness have broadened you know, massively over the last century. And the trauma example is another fine example of that, how I started to notice people talking about trauma in a much looser, more expansive kind of way. And then the social psychology side of me also noted similar things going on in relation to, for instance, bullying or prejudice, how social psychologists started to talk about prejudice in ways that included things well beyond the kinds of blatant bigotry that they used to exemplify prejudice back in the old days. And so I thought, well, maybe there's a pattern going on here. Maybe this is a general tendency for harm concepts to expand and inflate over time. And you argue that concept creep in psychology can happen in two ways. There's vertical expansion and horizontal expansion. Walk us through what's, what does vertical expansion look like? Vertical expansion is just the tendency for a term to come to refer to milder and milder examples. So that trauma case you just mentioned is really a terrific example of this, where initially trauma referred to things that were really severe, life-threatening, damaging to life and limb, and over time come to refer to uh, things much milder, less severe, less damaging while still referring to the more severe things as well. So the, it's a sort of trauma, it's a, it's a vertical creep in the sense that there's a kind of downward movement in the range of things that the concept refers to. Whereas horizontal creep is more when a, a word starts referring to qualitatively different things uh, in addition. So to give you an example of this, bullying is a good case study, I think, here as well. And the idea of bullying has really broadened over time. So if you'll allow me to go off on a little bit of a uh, sure. excursion here, uh, you know, bullying was introduced to psychology by this uh, Norwegian psychologist back in the 1970s. And he was really specific that it was a kind of peer aggression that occurred among school children that had to be intentional, it had to be repeated, it had to be carried out in the context of a a power differential where a a bigger or more powerful or older bully terrorised a smaller, weaker, younger victim. And over time, of course, this idea of bullying has been expanded to refer to sort of milder kind of examples and all of those criteria have been relaxed in the bullying literature. But an example of horizontal concept creep here, I think, is how we're increasingly using the word bullying to refer not just to things that happen in playgrounds, but also things that happen in boardrooms. So this expansion of the idea of bullying from something that occurs with children to something that occurs among adults is what I'd call a horizontal creep. It's an expansion, not of severity. No one's saying that adult bullying is milder than childhood bullying, but it's to a different range of experiences, a different range of contexts. So I would call that an example of horizontal creep. Or if you want to go back to the trauma case, the fact that trauma used to refer to physical wounds and then it expands to refer to psychological wounds is another example of this sort of horizontal creep where the concept broadens out to refer to qualitatively different sorts of phenomena. 
I want to dig more into some of these examples so we can flesh out, so we can people can see how different psychological concepts have experienced vertical and horizontal expansion. So let's let's dig into this, this trauma idea more because you, you just see it anytime you open up a magazine or a website article, there's just like trauma. Everything's trauma. You mentioned that originally started out trauma was a physical harm, right? If you lost a limb or you had a you know a big wound in war, that that was trauma. And then it shifted that you could also experience psychological trauma. And that is often the result of something very severe. Like what was like the example, like what, what was psychological trauma originally described as? Well, I think there wasn't a single kind. And again, also there's this ambiguity here because often people use, use trauma to refer to the event, the traumatic event, but sometimes they also use it to refer to the psychological response. So there's a kind of ambiguity in here. But when trauma made the jump from the physical to the mental. It was in the time of um, Janet and Freud and the like. And so often it was sexual trauma. Often it was sexual abuse, rape, various kinds of you know sexual harm done to people supposedly causing hysteria and other things like this. So trauma was events that weren't necessarily causing physical damage to the person, but were in some ways sort of rupturing their mind or soul in some fashion. And then you'd also see it, you started seeing it a lot in the 70s and 80s, Describe like PTSD. That was a, you know, it was caused by a traumatic event. You experienced what you know, I guess they would call moral trauma, like and it really harmed you psychologically. Yeah, I mean the whole advent of PTSD. Um, PTSD didn't exist until 1980 when DSM three was published. I mean there'd always been shell shock. There'd always been a recognition that there were psychological casualties of war, but there hadn't been this recognition that a traumatic event could cause a particular kind of mental illness. And so when DSM three was published in 1980, it was pretty much in response to the, the Vietnam War and the kinds of symptoms that were people the people were facing there. And DSM three said that uh, trauma was something which was, as I indicated, a life-threatening, damaging situation where the person was at risk of death or serious injury. And look, the word trauma had been used in the physical sense in the early psychiatric classifications where it was referring to uh, physical or chemical or electrical damage um, to the brain. But only in 1980 did we start talking about trauma as being some sort of psychologically meaningful event that caused harm. And in the case of PTSD, that harm would include flashbacks, would include hypervigilance, high levels of anxiety, and a range of deeply unpleasant and often hard to treat symptoms. And so you're seeing, again, this vertical creep, right? It moves from the physical, then it moves to psychological. But even with the, at the psychological, when it made that jump, the psychiatrists and psychologists were very adamant, like, this is, trauma is only something like, it has to be like really severe. It's like you you were raped or you saw someone die or you you did something in war that went against your, like, it was like the, the stakes were really high for there to be considered a, a traumatic event. <laughs> Yeah, and look, I think that's that's where it was uh, in 1980, and then progressively over the next few revisions of the DSM-3, that got relaxed. And look, it didn't get relaxed in some sort of willy-nilly, unprincipled way. There were reasons for it. So, for instance, a psychiatrist often noticed that people showed post-traumatic symptoms just full-fledged PTSD, but in response to witnessing rather than directly experiencing some sort of traumatic event or through some sort of event which wouldn't quite have met the criteria for being traumatic 
according to DSM-3, but nevertheless was was pretty severe. And so over a period of time, and this was arrested a little bit in DSM-5 in 2019, there was this loosening of what counted as a trauma. So it could include indirect experiences, vicarious experiences, witnessing things rather than having them happen to oneself, sexual experiences weren't, which weren't necessarily assaults, but which were developmentally inappropriate. And in various ways, this idea of trauma broadens. And it broadens, you know, as I say, for often quite good reasons, you know, namely that uh, some people show full-fledged post-traumatic stress disorder, having experienced something that fell short of the original definition of what a trauma was. So this idea of vicarious, like this could be, if you just saw something like on the news, this could cause trauma? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's uh, that that uh, kind of indirect experience was allowed. Uh, you no longer had to be the person to whom it happened. You just simply had to be aware of it. And of course, the more you do this, the more you broaden these conscious, the more people are potentially being traumatized. Uh, and of course, the rates of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder therefore go up because more people um, are eligible for it, as it were. There's also another thing. There's the expansion by clinicians that's going on, but there's also kind of an expansion going on with popular culture, with just people themselves, where they start, take that idea. They're not like psychologists, but they've heard about it. And then they continue the expansion even more. And as you said earlier, you know, trauma could be just something like just normal frustration for regular people. Absolutely. And I think uh, when I talk about concept creep, I'm not only talking about what professionals are saying, it's just as much what's going in the culture at large. And you're quite right. There is this tendency to grab a concept and run with it. And I mean, that's just the nature of psychology because there really are no bright lines between what is trauma and what is rather just an unpleasant event. There is gradations of these things and where you draw the line isn't clear. But yeah, lay people, I think for an assortment of reasons, will tend to expand concepts, use concepts more broadly, not just concepts of trauma, but uh, I mean, you can call someone a narcissist just because they're a little bit unpleasant. There's a wholesale borrowing of psychological concepts and using them in a little bit of a promiscuous way. No, I've, I, you can see how it creeps into the popular culture. A couple couple months ago, my daughter was having this frustration. She's like, I'm so traumatized. And I was like, what? Where did you like? Where did you hear that? Like that that you're traumatized by that? Because for me, the definition of trauma is like you had to like it's like PTSD. You had to experience something that gave you PTSD, and that was you know the severe stuff, the really heavy stuff. And I was like, where did you learn? It's like, oh, YouTuber talks about that. I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, look, this happens all the time, and it's it's interesting. We do some research on this sort of thing, and we find that people have very widely discrepant understandings of what these words mean. So some people like you might have relatively narrow concepts of trauma. Others, maybe like your daughter, or at least the YouTubers who are giving her these ideas might have much broader ones. We aren't using these terms with common meanings. We often mean very different things by them. As I say, we've done research on on this and we find huge variations in the breadth of people's concepts of trauma, of bullying, of abuse, of mental illness, we find that there are systematic differences in the sorts of people who have broader versus narrower concepts. So people who are more politically liberal tend to have broader concepts. Women, on average, tend to have broader concepts of harm. More empathic people have broader concepts of harm. There's an array of different personality characteristics. People who are somewhat more personally vulnerable tend to have broader concepts of harm. It's not about age, incidentally. So often people think it's just these youngsters who, who have these broad concepts of harm. Actually, age is not the main determinant at all. 
So you mentioned bowling and you gave that as an example of horizontal expansion where it went from schoolyard to boardroom. But you also talk about in your research paper that it's also expanded horizontally by, you can now cyber bully someone, right? So it's like, it, it goes from the physical world to the virtual world. Yeah, look, I think, you know, bullies and humans in general are versatile, right? So if we've got a new medium for doing something horrible to someone, we'll take it. And again, that obviously couldn't have occurred back in the 70s because there were there was no cyber to bully with. And, you know, this is nevertheless a broadening of the meaning. You used to, bullying required you to be in the physical presence of someone in the old days, and now it doesn't. You can do it digitally. And again, no one is saying that cyberbullying is less severe than uh, in-person uh, physical bullying. Uh, it, there's no intrinsic greater mildness of it, but it is a different phenomenon. And I think it's really important here to be clear that I'm not saying this is necessarily a bad thing. I think some people, when they hear the idea of concept creep, they think, ah, this individual is saying we shouldn't be broadening our meanings and it is wrong, or that it's a sign of weakness or vulnerability or fragility uh, or something like that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying once bullying expands to include cyberbullying, it's broadened its meaning. And that's a thing that's neither intrinsically good nor bad. How has bullying experienced or have has had vertical expansion? Well, I think, again, going back to what Olius, the Norwegian, said about bullying, it had to be behavior that was repeated, intentional, and carried out downwards in some sort of power hierarchy. And over time, all of those things have been relaxed so that we can now say someone's bullying someone else, even if they only did it once. Now, that's intrinsically a vertical expansion, right? Because it means now you don't need to do something multiple times to be called a bullying. You just need to do it once. So that's a milder understanding of what bullying might be. You can, do, uh, you can be a bully through unintentional behavior, according to some ways of thinking. That's, again, uh, arguably a vertical expansion. You could argue with that. I mean, often bullying as well, the focus in the old days used to be on physical acts of commission where you do something bad to someone else, but more and more bullying is including acts of omission where you just fail to include someone in your social group and things like that, which I think, you know, ostracism hurts. I'm not saying that's intrinsically milder, but I think once you start including acts of omission, among acts of commission, you are essentially my, uh, making the behaviour more mild. And the other example, I think also the in terms of the, the the hierarchy idea, once upon a time, bullying was always downwards in a hierarchy. But then when I do my human resources module at my university, I'm told that you can be bullied by someone uh, below you in the hierarchy or by a peer at the same level. And I think once you start talking about bullying as something that two co-workers do to one another when they're at the same rank, or when an underling bullies uh, someone who's higher up the chain, that's uh, probably in most cases a vertical expansion. That's a sort of milder kind of behavior than when someone in power is bullying someone with less power. Is also like, you know, just like teasing, that would be sort of good nature teasing can be labeled bullying now. Is that like a vertical expansion? Yeah, it would be. And again, no one's saying that teasing is is fun necessarily, but that's the other thing I think that you see in many examples of concept creep, that it's, it's more and more seen as being a matter of the victim or target's perceptions, not necessarily the intentions of the person who's doing the bullying. So if you experience my teasing of you as being bullying, then it probably is bullying. So there's a kind of uh, subjectivizing of the concepts as well, rather than uh, trying to define the concepts in terms of actual objective behaviors. You also about addiction has gone through concept creep. How so? 
Well, I think this is another story which, you know, I didn't invent this. A lot of people have observed this before me. But at one point in time, addictions were to ingested substances. So you chewed up your heroin or you smoke your cigarette. And over time, you develop a physiological dependency to the substance, which uh, you require more and more of to get the same sort of hit. Uh, And there is a physical dependency on this ingested substance, which strictly your body doesn't need. But then over time, we've developed this idea of behavioural addictions where you can be addicted to pornography, to eating, to sex, to love, to gambling, and a range of other behaviours, some of which you you have to do. I mean, you do have to eat. So it's not as if like heroin, you don't actually need it to survive. So there's been this general inclusion of acts, some of them merely just bad habits and describing them in terms of an addiction dynamic as if you're addicted to the behaviour rather than addicted to some substance. And again, no one's saying this is necessarily a bad idea because there's lots of neurobiological evidence that similar processes are going on when you're addicted to a substance as when you're addicted to a video game, let's say. But nevertheless, it's still an expansion of the idea. Addiction wasn't in the past used to refer to these sorts of habitual compulsive behaviours, and now it is. And and I guess an example, too, of a vertical expansion with addiction is that, you know, clinically addiction is, you know, it's a repetitive behaviour that gets in the way of your life, right, that just causes problems. Some people might call something they do repetitively an addiction, but it doesn't really get in the way of their life, right? They might check their phone more than they like, but it doesn't, they can still pay their bills. They go to jobs, not get in the way of their marriage, et cetera, but they might call it that an addiction, even though clinically they might say, well, it's not an addiction. Yeah, quite right. And I think a lot of people say this and sometimes they say it in a kind of flippant way without really meaning it. They're not claiming that they're suffering from a mental illness when they say that they uh, check their phones too often. But they're using this word which has these connotations of dependency and which also imply that these things might be hard to get out of or that you have limited control over them. So I think the words we use to describe our experiences matter. And if you start using those words in loose, relaxed, inflated kind of ways, that can have consequences. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. Have any other mental disorders like maybe ADHD, anxiety, depression, have those experienced concept creep over the years? Have any not experienced it? I think it's really so common. 
pretty much any disorder you can think about has probably undergone some change at some point. Now, it hasn't always necessarily been in one direction. So often there's a broadening from one edition of a diagnostic classification to the next, and then it uh, retreats uh, the one after. But for sure, these things have happened. So, you know, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder um, has certainly broadened. And the reason why these things broaden in part is because they're on a spectrum, they're on a continuum. And so where you carve the continuum between those who have the disorder and those who are merely a little bit inattentive or uh, rambunctious is, is quite hard to do. But certainly you see very large increases over certain periods of time in the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder. And one reason for that is that the diagnostic boundary has shifted downwards so that more people meet the criteria. So that's happened. I think in depression, there's definitely work that people are using the word more loosely than they once did, everyday people. And there's also some evidence that the professionals have as well. So there's a great book called The Loss of Sadness by Alan Horwitz and uh, Jerry Wakefield, which discusses how the idea of depression at one point referred to very severe melancholia, where the person was essentially uh, often suffering from delusions of rotting from the inside, or it wasn't simply unhappy. And over time, we've started to refer to what used to be just everyday sadness as depression. We've brought in clinical language to refer to everyday emotions to some degree. Now, that's not to say that in psychiatry, depression has radically changed its meanings. Often these changes in meanings are more how everyday people use these words inappropriately, if you like, compared to professional language, rather than how psychiatry uses these words. But yes, depression's broadened over time. You can say the same thing about some anxiety conditions. You can certainly say the same thing about the autism spectrum, how that is certainly broadened out over time, often in fits and starts rather than in, in sort of one linear kind of way. But it's really, really common. And look, I'm not the first person to point out diagnostic expansion or concept creep. Uh, A lot of people have talked about it. There was a lot of chatter prior to the publication of the last issue of the DSM in 2013 when people were saying normality is endangered because everything is now considered abnormal uh, because our idea of mental illness is just billowed out to become something enormously inflated. With the regards to anxiety, I've have a friend who's a college professor and he was he kind of he was telling me something like, oh that's after I read your paper, like that's concept creep in action. He was saying how, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago when he was teaching, he'd have one or two students that would need some sort of testing accommodation. And usually it was for you know they were dyslexic or something like that. And now he says it's like 30% of my students get some sort of test accommodation because they have uh, test anxiety. And he's like, it's really interesting that to see that happen in just 10 years. Yeah. Some of these things happen very rapidly. Some of them happen more slowly. And I think that experience that the professor had is something we see here in Australia as well. It's not a uniquely US phenomenon. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the professional concept of an anxiety disorder has broadened over that time. I mean, we've done some research on this and shown that the tendency for mental disorders to expand over time has been weak overall, present but weak. But how people use those concepts or people's willingness to see their own experience in terms of these concepts and often get a compliant doctor to sign off on them has definitely increased. So more and more people are describing their experiences, not as 
normal worry or normal anxiety, but more as clinical anxiety, which therefore needs some sort of accommodation uh, or needs some sort of treatment. And again, that's not necessarily something you lay at the foot of the psychiatrists. That's really just how everyday people are starting to understand their own experience. And it's having real effects in universities. What's your theory about what's behind concept creep? I mean, do you, do you have an idea? I mean, I guess it's completely theoretical, but like what would encourage concept creep, you think? Well, I think there's a pattern here in that uh, there are a lot of concepts which are creeping. There are a lot of these ideas that we've talked about so far that are broadening their meanings, and they're actually quite diverse. So trauma and mental illness and addiction are all to do with clinical psychology and and, and, uh, mental health problems. But then there are others like bullying and abuse, which aren't specifically about mental illness. And then there is others like violence and hate and prejudice, which are different yet again. And I think maybe there's some sort of single underlying dynamic for all of these. And and what I say without huge amounts of evidence, I have to be clear, is that there's just been a rising sensitivity to harm within many Western cultures. There's just a greater concern for harm, a concern for caring for others who have been harmed. Harm has just sort of become a more dominant cultural theme, and we are therefore more attentive to it than we used to be. And I'm not just you know saying that from my armchair. We've actually done some work looking at uh, changes in moral language over the last century. We do find, starting in about 1980, after the prominence of harm-related moral concepts had declined throughout the 20th century, you see this uh, fairly steep rise since then. At roughly the time when I think a lot of concept creep is happening, people are becoming more concerned about harm. They're becoming more concerned about the ways in which people are harmed and the way in which people harm others. And the changing meanings are simply a reflection of that rising cultural concern about harm, which I think is quite ambivalent. I mean, being more concerned about harm is a great thing, right? You no longer tolerate bad behavior. You no longer tolerate sexual harassment as much as you used to. You no longer tolerate bullying as much as you used to. You identify people who might have been languishing without treatment and say, here, here are some treatments for your problems, which we'll now call a mental illness. But maybe also there are some uh, negative aspects as well. So I would say at a broader kind of cultural, societal level, what is going on is this rising sensitivity to harm and the changes in concept meanings come out of that. Now, of course, there are other things which might lead people to broaden the meanings of concepts. So sometimes people do it quite deliberately. People broaden the meaning of a concept in order to achieve some sort of uh, political end. Concepts creep for an assortment of uh, reasons which we've talked about in some of our academic papers. But I think the dominant thing, as I was saying, is just rising concern with harm in our cultures. Is the rising sensitivity due, do you think, to the fact that, you know, since about the 1980s, like Western societies have been relatively affluent and safe. And so you become more sensitive to things that, you know, in a previous generation, you would have just ignored because, you know, you were, you were, you were starving or your, your family was going off to war, et cetera. So you didn't have the luxury to be sensitive, right, to harm. So now that we are a little more safe, we can be more sensitive to those, to, to harm. Yeah, look, I think that's a large part of the story. Uh, And again, um, you have to be careful how you say this because you don't want to create the impression that you think that uh, no one is suffering out there. Of course, there's lots of rotten things happening in the world. But yeah, I think the sort of people who do studies, the sort of people who use the words trauma and bullying and addiction in their understandings of their own experience, 
tend to have grown up in contexts where there is less harm and damage, where we do live longer, where there is more affluence. And so, of course, it stands to reason that milder things will seem harmful if you are accustomed to less harm. And we do find some pretty good evidence that that's one of the drivers of what's going on with with concept creep. So part of it, I think you're right, is just people adjust to the level of risk and threat and danger uh, in their world. And if you've experienced less of it, smaller harms will be more salient to you and, and more problematic to you. So I think it's partly a story to do with just the objective rising comfort overall of our lives. And it's also a change in our values. So I think there's this rise in what some people have called post-materialist values, where people seek fulfillment and well-being for its own sake, rather than just struggling to get by materially. And that, I think, also contributes to this rising focus on the things that can go wrong in your life and a greater attention to, in the scheme of things, milder problems. You also bring in this idea, this philosopher, Ian Hacking, that might provide some idea about concept creep. What did he have to say that can help us understand concept creep? Yeah, look, Hacking is one of my heroes. He's a philosopher based in Toronto. And uh, I mean, he has this idea of looping kinds and what he calls dynamic nominalism, if you care about that. But essentially, the idea is, he says, as concepts evolve, and he wrote some wonderful stories about evolving ideas of uh, autism and multiple personality and things of this nature and child abuse. Concepts change through time. We all know that. You don't need to be a historian to know that. But what hacking adds to that that's interesting is that these changing concepts actually change your identities. They bring new kinds of person into existence. Once you start using some sort of concept like autism uh, or like bullying, uh, once you start using these words in different ways, you actually change how people experience themselves and how they identify themselves as being bullied or as being uh, victims or as being traumatized. And those changing concepts through history bring about new senses of personal identity uh, and social identity, which really matter. So it's not as if just the concept changes in some sort of abstract way. It actually changes people, makes new kinds of people exist. You get a greater range of you know new traumatized people who see themselves as traumatized as a class and historical changes in concepts sort of find their way inside us to create new identities. So look, that was probably a little bit waffly. In fact, I'm sure it was waffly, but Hacking is sort of giving us a way of showing how concept creep at a cultural level, that is changes in how the culture at large defines concepts, can have impacts on the individual members of those cultures. No, that makes sense. I mean, so if you were, before, if you were just like a worrier, now you say, oh, I have anxiety. And that changes the way you think about yourself and how you interact with the world. Yeah, and how others react to you and how you seek certain kind of treatments and how you receive certain kind of treatments and has all sorts of flow on consequences. And the very same experience at some level suddenly becomes different because the label isn't just a label. The label creates your sense of self, allows others to see you in a certain way as someone who's experiencing a disorder rather than someone who's just experiencing uh, everyday uh, worries. So we've, we've mentioned how there's been concept creep going on from the clinician standpoint with the DMS-5. Like they've been changing it over the years. And, you know, they've, for good reasons, like as you said, maybe we need to, it makes sense to expand trauma in, in certain ways. But as we also have talked about, there's also an expansion going on with lay individuals. And I've noticed, I would say in the past year or two, this increase of like, I guess we call them like mental health influencers on social media. I don't know if you're, you keep follow that much. Do you think, I mean, do you think social media is accelerating the idea of concept creep in different ways? 
I don't follow it too much, but I'm sure you're right. I think it, it turbocharges everything, right? So the rate of change is just so much more rapid now, in part because there's just this instantaneous circulation of new ideas and words get used in new ways all the time. And of course, at some level, this is all good, you know, democratization of ideas and, and people, of course, borrow and use these words any way they like. But I do think it does become a bit, you know, to use what I used earlier, promiscuous. I think you're using words too freely. The words, the clinical words especially, get you know, detached from their actual, you know, professional meanings. And I think at some level you could say, well, who cares? Who cares if someone's talking about being traumatised when it was just some minor romantic breakup? Who cares what language they use? And I think it does kind of matter. Because if you're framing your experience in clinical language, in terms of diagnostic language, that has implications for how damaging you think the experience will be, what sort of interventions you might need for it. And it changes the whole complexion of what problem is in your world. So the short answer to your question is, yeah, I'm sure influencers and, and many others who are using psychiatric sorts of terms in, in new and broader inflated ways. I'm sure that's occurring a lot. And I do worry a little bit about the consequences of that. So, I mean, there's consequences of concept creep. We'll talk about the negatives, but first, like, let's talk about the positive. Like, what do you think are the benefits of concept creep? What have been the, what have been the benefits of concept creep, you think? Well, I think, uh, you know, in the abstract, you could just say, if you are identifying new harms, which you previously didn't identify as being problems, then you allow them to be dealt with and taken seriously and, and respected. So if, for instance, in terms of bullying, if in previous times, we just thought that nasty behaviour by superiors to their underlings in workplaces was just ordinary office politics, and you should just uh, harden up and deal with it. I think if you start to use the label of bullying to refer to this, you know, maybe that allows you to control, reduce, deal with, and, and punish bullying in workplace context, which is a good thing. So that's just sort of an example, I think, where broadening the concept allows you to problematize things that were previously tolerated. Uh, you could probably say the same thing about some kinds of abuse or harassment, violence, pretty much any concept, if you just lower the threshold for when you identify that, that concept, it allows you to care for people who have been harmed, harmed in ways that weren't previously considered to be important enough to deal with. So, I mean, that's all a bit abstract. I'm sorry, Brett, but I think it pains to say that there are both costs and benefits. And I think the benefits are problematizing and taking seriously forms of harm that were previously neglected. What about the negative consequences? both for the individual and as a society? Well, I think as a society, you just have to wonder whether it makes good sense if everyone thinks they've been traumatized or if everyone thinks they've got a mental health condition. Or occasionally, of course, lowering the threshold for when some bad thing has happened can be oversensitive. We can, in the case of bullying, for instance, criminalize behavior that really might be unintentional, unrepeated, and really not so bad at all in context, especially if we allow the person who's being victimized to define what counts as bullying to them. I think it can lead to sort of overly harsh punishments for people who've uh, maybe done things that aren't as severe as the term might suggest. I think in terms of the clinical world, again, you have to be really careful how you say this because you do want people to go and seek help when they've uh, experienced some kind of mental illness and uh, not enough people 
especially men, do seek help for mental health problems. But then if you define mental health problems so broadly that just about everyone has them, I think you run the risk of people feeling that they're unable to deal with their own problems themselves. They have to seek professional treatment when perhaps they could do a do pretty good self-help without professional intervention. You see people defining themselves as harmed or as victims when maybe that's not a very helpful identity from the standpoint of uh, recovery uh, and, and getting better. So I think generally speaking, again, being somewhat abstract here, broadened concepts of harm lead more people to identify themselves as victims as and as harmed. And that, if it becomes part of your identity, I think is problematic because it often stands in the way of you getting out of those problems. Harvard psychologists, um, Peyton Jones and Richard McNally, have done some amazing work on trauma where they experimentally manipulate people's concepts of trauma to give them broader versus narrower concept of trauma. Then they expose them to a very unpleasant video clip with IRB approval, of course. And they show that those who have a broadened concept of trauma tend to respond worse with more post-traumatic symptoms to the, the gruesome video showing that the breadth of your concept of trauma in this case has real emotional consequences for you. And I think much could be said and much could be said about how broadened concepts of mental illness might have, as Hacking would have said, implications for our well-being. Well, Nick, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about your work? Uh, there's lots of academic papers. I haven't written anything really popular on it. You can find a an article by Connor Friedersdorf in The Atlantic from 2016 when the first paper came out. If you want to see what I've been doing and my colleagues have been doing, I've got a ResearchGate page where you can find uh, some of my uh, papers and you can uh, recommend a review paper we have called Harm Inflation that was published a couple of years ago in the European Review of Social Psychology. It's all kind of technical. So if you're into social psychology, you'll love it. If you're not, it might not be right. But look, check out my ResearchGate page and get in touch if you'd like to. All right. Well, Nick Haslam, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Me too. Thanks so much. My guest today was Nick Haslam. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Melbourne. You can find all of his research on concept creep at researchgate.net. Just go to researchgate.net and look up Nick Haslam. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash concept creep, where you find links to resources and we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS to check out for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member you think you'll get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you not to listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.